cancer enters your life, things get real very quickly. A cancer diagnosis is for many people a terrifying experience as it brings the person receiving the diagnosis as well as his or her family and friends face to face with the possibility of death. For many, a cancer diagnosis is the first close-up experience in thinking seriously about the end of life. While cancer treatment can extend life, it is often rigorous, painful, alienating, demoralizing, tedious, and frustrating. Even when treatment works, the experience can have lasting, complicated effects. The phase after treatment can also be the beginning of unexpected and unwelcome periods of heightened vulnerability. A cancer diagnosis and its treatment is often a transformative experience in the physical, emotional, social, and psychological aspects of the lives of everyone it touches. I'm Diane McDaniel, and this is Real Cancer. In today's episode, we turn the tables on interviewer and interviewee. I've asked Rory Green, with whom I sat through weekly chemotherapy sessions, to lead a conversation with me about my experience with ovarian cancer, its treatment, and the period of regular checkups after treatment concluded. We also talk about the impetus for The Real Cancer Podcast and my hope that it will provide community and insight for people who are living with cancer in one way or another. Hi, Diane. Hi, Rory. It's very lovely. We were turning the tables on you today, and I'm going to be interviewing you and talking to you about your journey with a cancer diagnosis. Thank you. I appreciate you switching spots with me. <laughs> well, I guess that's where we're going to start. If you could, um, you know, maybe tell us a few details of, of your journey thus far. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in June of 2015. Uh, the diagnosis took a while because ovarian cancer is difficult to diagnose and um, actually, I just found out that the, um, the stage at which I was diagnosed, which is 3C, is the most common stage at which ovarian cancer is diagnosed. Hmm. So um, I, I, I don't know how many people are diagnosed before that. Um, and that's what makes um, this cancer also so deadly, is that um, it's, it's hard to diagnose it any earlier than hmm. when I was diagnosed. Um, I was uh, I was diagnosed um, after or during a surgery that I had to find out what was going on. I had some sort of mass inside of my abdomen pelvis area, and um, so uh, when I woke up from that surgery, I learned that I had cancer. And then in the next day or so, I, I found out more about that as well as the treatment that I would undergo, which was um, chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'd had 18 weeks of chemotherapy initially, and then we had to do another surgery, actually, to see whether it had worked. So I was uh, monitored during my chemotherapy. My, my blood was taken, and, and uh, a protein called CA125 was monitored, and it, it had come down as we wanted it to during my um, chemotherapy, but we actually had to uh, have another surgery in order to find out how successful um, it had been and also uh, 
to remove a few more organs that weren't able to be removed um, in that first surgery. Mm. And so I had a complete hysterectomy mm. during that second surgery. Uh, my second ovary was removed. At the same time, it was not able to be removed um, initially because there was so much cancer inside of me. And uh, But uh, during that second surgery, I was declared cancer-free. Mm. But anyway, my doctor wanted to do some additional chemotherapy because there was uh, some cancer, a cancer cell found in some of the tissue that was removed uh, during that second surgery. And right. so I did um, nine more weeks of chemotherapy after, after that. And so I finished um, just over a year ago, and I have been uh, being monitored since then, um, but uh, so far, so good. Mm, fantastic. So you, from what you've explained, gone through a very intense course of treatment. What does it feel like now? I know it's been almost two years since the diagnosis, even just thinking back and looking back at that time. What does it feel like now to tell the story? Oh, well, I, I have told the story a couple of times, so it, it just feels like a report, I guess. Mm. But um, I guess it's a happy story. But just thinking about uh, that time, learning that I had cancer, learning that I had advanced cancer, mm. learning about my chances for survival, mm. um, you know, starting to go through chemotherapy, I... I I started chemotherapy. I had had my surgery on Tuesday. I think I got out of the um, uh, out of the hospital on Saturday, and I started chemotherapy the following Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And so it was all very quick, and that was such a crazy, crazy intense time. It was so overwhelming. I was in a lot of pain from my surgery, mm -hmm. and. Um, obviously from learning that I had cancer as well. And so I, I guess I kind of just tune back into that emotional experience a little bit in mm. thinking about the story. Yes. And tell me a little bit about how you coped at that time, whether any during the treatment and prior to the treatment and embarking upon it. What do you feel was most helpful for you? Or when you think back, what really stands out during that time? Well, I, I really did... Uh, call in the troops in terms of just getting a lot of uh, people around me. So I had a lot of friends come and uh, spend time with me sitting in the garden. I talked to a lot of people. I read a lot of books. Um, and I just tried to um, just, you know, have a single-minded pursuit in terms of continuing in on my on my, uh, my course of treatment and getting well. That was really all that I was thinking about. Um, and I think that just that kind of single-minded pursuit was what, what was my main coping strategy. Also just trusting my doctor and not really learning too much about my diagnosis. Mm. I think um, because my particular cancer and the stage at which I was diagnosed was just that all of the anything that I read was so negative mm. that I just couldn't actually read anything about it, it because it just would take me down this rabbit hole that would make me feel despair 
And so for me, it was more just, um, I had a lot of belief in my doctor and, and trust in what she was doing and the nurses there, and um, just being kind of almost tunnel vision. Mm. And what about navigating the relationships with those closest to you? I know those early conversations when you are having to decipher your own diagnosis and at the same time determine what you're going to be telling other people. How did that go for you? Oh, um, in terms of the information that I was sharing with people? Yes, yeah, because you were talking about your own... Uh, your own sense of despair when you kind of looked into the statistics or the information that you were given. So how did you manage that in dialogue with others in your life? I, I really, I, 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 I didn't think about that aspect of it. I really was quite, I think I was quite positive mm. with people because that was the attitude that I had with myself. And so um, I was kind of more matter of fact about mm. what I was doing. Um, I, I really was, at the time, very invested in being strong and, um, and getting through it. And so I didn't really allow myself a lot of emotionality around it. I really kind of shut that down mm. and, uh, and didn't, um, didn't tune into that. I, I have subsequently tuned into that a lot <laughs> in, mm -hmm. the, in the post-treatment um, period. But during that time, I think I really, um, I just was focused on what do I need to do? And so it sounds like you were very directional about it and that your psychological state was essential during that time. Yeah, it was. Uh, well, that was how I, I was coping with it. You know, since then, I've gone into therapy and I've become much more uh, in touch with what was going on for me but I think at the time I felt so overwhelmed that I just couldn't mm. uh, I couldn't be reflective really mm. and it, it sounds like maybe that was self-protective as well that in, on a gut level perhaps you knew that you need to cut off from emotion a little bit in order to get through to you know get through the experience come out on the other side I think so in order to just keep on going yeah yeah, yeah it takes a huge amount of endurance yeah. um, I remember you were you were writing and publishing a, a, a blog or during the time um, of your treatment and how did can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like of actually writing about it yeah, that was it was great. It was really one of the things that helped me because I think that that was probably the only place where I was able to articulate those feelings of fear mm. and despair more than um, I really allowed myself to in any other uh, setting. And so I, I did write about those things. I, I tried, though, to also kind of flip things around a bit and look at, um, you know, uh, things from a different perspective. So I remember one day going to pick up my son, Dexter, from um, the sailing camp he was at and feeling really annoyed that he wasn't ready to go and I was sort of standing in the sun and I wasn't supposed to be in the sun because when you're having chemotherapy you just can burn really easily and it was windy and I was it was hot and I was just so irritated with him and then I just kind of in a moment tuned into the fact that actually it was such a luxury to be here mm. waiting for him because who knows, the next summer, I might not be here. Mm. My treatment might not be successful, but 
at this moment, I am here, and mm-hmm. I can wait for my son and drive home with him. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that the, the writing helped me to articulate some of those moments as well about how my perspective was changing. Right. And as you know, I'm a big believer in, in writing to heal and writing as catharsis and a way of allowing a voice that maybe has been silenced to come through. So it sounds like that was so helpful to you. I'm wondering if there was anything else that you can think back on that really helped you through the time period as well of your treatment. Well, I definitely just uh, the support of friends was really, really key. And also um, a, a group of women who I learned, uh, who I met and, and, and talked to, who just talked to me about what they had gone through in terms of their um, cancer journey. And, and it, so in that, that was sort of my research in terms of learning more about cancer. I didn't know anybody who had ovarian cancer, but I did know some women who had had breast cancer. And so learning about, you know, how they dealt with their hair loss or Mm -hmm. learning about how they dealt with that period after their treatment, um, I just, it gave me a little um, perspective, I think, as well, in terms of uh, thinking about my own experience and and how I might think about what I was going through. And for you personally, because I know everybody's journey is quite unique, although there are common threads, but for you personally, what was your greatest physical challenge and emotional challenge? Uh, My greatest physical challenge was uh, the fact that I just was so weak. Mm -hmm. And um, I I just had a hard time going anywhere. I would just become incredibly fatigued and... Um, and that was really hard in terms of just my self-perception because I always think of myself as being a very capable and strong person. And mm-hmm. so um, to really just be physically weak was was a real challenge for me. And then um, I think in terms of emotional, just wanting to have uh, just somebody who could uh, just really take care of me was something that I was longing for. And it wasn't a role really that was in my family beforehand. Mm-hmm. I'm the caretaker. Yeah. And so it wasn't something that anybody could step into. Yeah. And my mother had died a few months before, and so she wasn't here to do it. And, and I so I felt that loss mm. a lot emotionally. And that was really, that was that was probably the hardest thing was that I really longed for somebody who would sort of envelop me and just take care of me. Mm. And I just didn't have that. Yeah, that's so hard. And I know from my own experience and from what you've just shared that there's a real balance between trying to remain very optimistic and positive about whatever course of treatment you are on, but also honoring the grief and the loss of whatever other emotional past experiences it's bringing up and also just the loss of your life as you'd previously known it because just the diagnosis in and of itself becomes quite such a significant loss so having to navigate that can be really hard yeah I think it just uh, when you are so vulnerable it um, it just brings up a lot of Mm. understanding of what's going on in your life and Mm. um you know, how you might want things to be different, but they can't be because that's just not the way that it was ever. Mm-hmm. And so it cannot suddenly become because you have cancer. Mm. And you said that you started um, therapy 
after treatment, is that right? Or was it during treatment? I did. Um, I, before my second surgery, I started um, going to therapy. And that has been really such a helpful experience mm. to really just understand uh, what I've gone through, um, how my life has changed, and just to understand what I can expect from other people and how to uh, understand experiences that I'm having, my own and my experience with other people, Mm -hmm. just to have a way of interpreting what's happening and and Mm -hmm. my own reaction. Mm. It's been very, very helpful. And then I have had, I did have a recurrent scare. And so having a therapist at that time to help me manage that uh, emotional turmoil was also very helpful. Right. So it sounds like it's been a true exercise in perspective taking. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about, um, you said you had a recurrent scare, but about what that's been like, this this sort of the aftermath post-treatment time and fear of recurrence and managing your anxiety yeah so I think that as as you're finishing treatment you come to understand that there's going to be this monitoring and that it's going to be it's going to be anxiety provoking to be monitored but I I sort of expected that I would be just checked every two months and that I would be fine and kind of passed through every two months but that's not what happened um I, I, I did have that experience uh, the first time that I was checked, but when I got to the second two-month uh, checkup, my uh, CA125, which is the, the protein that is checked um, regarding ovarian cancer, uh, had gone up. And so I then was doing CAT scans, and I did a PET scan, and um, uh, I... I really got plunged into this world of uncertainty Mm. and I've never really come out of it and now I come to understand that that is what the post-cancer situation is about is uncertainty Mm. Um, and so these measures the CA125 the CAT scans they're just not as clear an indicator as you would want it to be Mm. and so Recently, my doctor said to me, I think you're in remission, but I'm not sure. I can't really tell because of the, you know, your CA125 is telling me one thing, but what I'm seeing on the CAT scan is something else that may be um, scar tissue that's still developing, but it could be the growth of a tumor. And so we have to keep checking. And so I think it is just getting used to going through these periods of vulnerability when you're being checked and then just trying to find a way to manage that between the checking times. Mm. So you truly are living the question mark, as it were, which we're all living the question mark, but there's something about a diagnosis that really becomes a bold question mark rather than... I think it just puts into relief the the fact that it's a question mark for everybody. It's just... It's just that you know what your question mark is about. Yes. You know what the question is. Yes. Do I have cancer again? Yes. Yeah. And and how would you say this whole experience has impacted the various relationships in your life with friends and family, with your children? I think that um, it has made me definitely slow down and want to enjoy the time that I have 
whatever I'm doing, whether I'm waiting for my son to mm-hmm. finish up whatever he's doing when I'm picking him up. Um, just, uh, you know, when I want to be doing something else but my daughter needs help to just put that into perspective and to spend that time with her. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it has made me much more comfortable with discomfort of life and uncertainty of life. And so it doesn't make it any easier, but I just am more comfortable with being with people in their uncertainty mm. and, um, and difficulty. So I think it's made me a more compassionate person, a, more, a less impatient person, um, and a person who can just be present and even if it's uncomfortable to just be able to be in that discomfort. Mm. And what about with um, your children? You talked about being present, more present with them. Do you think there's other ways that it's changed the way you parent or how you interact? Yeah, I'm, I'm just much more conscious of not being, trying not to be impatient, trying to just um, savor my time with them, mm. um, to savor them. Um, I think that my son is is 16, so I feel a little bit more comfortable with him with regards to whatever happens with me. He's he's a little bit more grown up. My daughter is 10, and that is the person who I really focus on in terms of worrying about my life. Mm. I really feel like she needs a mother, and um, so when I do have a... A moment of uh, you know having to go get checked and perhaps get some news that's not exactly what I wanted to hear or just more uncertainty I focus on her a lot mm. and so I really I just consciously want to spend time with her and and give her all the mothering that I can mm-hmm. while we're together yeah that makes absolute sense um, tell me a little bit, Diane, about, um, we've talked about the impact on your personal life, but what about on your professional life? And if you could uh, maybe explain a little bit of the uh, the genesis of this podcast and Real Cancer. Yeah, so I worked in publishing for a long time, in college publishing, and then I actually lost my job about six months before I was diagnosed with cancer. Um, I thought that I would probably go into this kind of work or something similar Um, and then my mother was ill my mother died and um, and so I think that and then I was starting to go on this journey of trying to figure out what was wrong with me I was I tuned into my own health um, a little bit more at that point and and I it was difficult to find out what what was happening I had some symptoms and um, and uh, so that that took a little while. So I, I sort of put the the job search on hold, and then once I had my diagnosis, I, I knew I wasn't uh, getting a job anytime soon. I was I was focusing on on just trying to get, you know, save my life um, through my treatment. Um, the idea for the podcast really came from uh, reading about somebody who had started a podcast, and I thought, oh well, I'd like to try that. I have, you know, I'd be interested in in um, in just learning more about podcasting, and so I I started listening to podcasts, and I thought I would like to 
do something around cancer, but I didn't find anything that was what I wanted to, to hear. Most things were about uh, cancer trials or about uh, medical information. And because the support of friends had been so uh, important to me mm. while I was going through my cancer situation, I thought that I would like to have conversations with people about what they'd been through and to be able to share those uh, those conversations through this amazing miracle of podcasting where anybody can um, put together a podcast and put it out there for um, you know listeners to tune into if they're interested. Um, and so that is what I'm doing is just finding people who have, uh, everybody I think has an interesting experience with cancer, um, but just to talk to people about their different, their experiences, um, you know, what, what they've sort of done with their cancer experience. Right. Um, and to try to, um, put those stories out there so that people who are going through, their own experience, whether it's a, as a patient or as a family member, can hear about what it's like to live with the reality of cancer. Mm. And I, I strongly believe that there's so much benefit to be gained from listening to other people's stories and tying together those threads of humanity that we have. And even though we know that thousands of people are diagnosed with cancer on a daily basis, it can be such a profoundly lonely experience. So when you first shared with me the idea of the podcast, I loved the idea of connecting the stories and connecting the dots, as it were, to make people feel more included um, and perhaps make some meaning and sense of their own journey as well. So Right. I, I wrote, you know, I wrote about my experience in my blog that you talked about. Um, but yeah, I wanted to, to bring out some more of those stories yeah. and to, to hear about just the experience and insights that people had gotten from their experience. It's, it's a very, you know, through the fire kind of experience. And so it does change your life one way or another, I think, for most people. Yes, it's absolutely transformational. So on that note, um, before we finish up, can you tell us what your advice would be to, um, and I'm sure people have contacted you to other people who have just been diagnosed or are just embarking on this journey. What would your what would your tips be for them, your top tips? You know, I think that my tip is is less for the person who has cancer and more for their, um, their friends, their loved ones, to, to be present for that person mm-hmm. and to, to just be available in, to help them in whatever way it is that they need help and to, be, to keep in touch and to just, um, you know, not to, to to make themselves available. Not necessarily, you know, can I can I bring you dinner? Can I drive you here and there? I found some of those ways in which people wanted to be helpful a little um, too much for me. Mm-hmm. But I liked it when people said, "I'm thinking about you. Mm-hmm. Is there something that you need from me right now?" And just kind of kept connecting with me throughout my journey to, to make me feel less alone and to be able to um, not really give advice but really to uh, just to be able to listen and to hear what that person is going through because oftentimes that's that's what that person needs. Mm. Um, the person who's going through an extent, intense experience just needs to be able to talk to someone. Mm. And so really the 
my thought is more for the the loved ones and for the the friends of the person who's going through that experience. Mm. And I think that's really helpful because I think so often those people, the people around you, around the the person who has just been diagnosed, are also obviously in so much pain and discomfort and and struggling to know what what is the right thing to do or say. So I think it is helpful for people who have been through the experience to share from the other side of things what's helpful to them and what's worked and what doesn't work. Yeah, my friend, my niece came to me when I was going through this when I was going through my my chemotherapy and she said my friend has just been diagnosed and I just really want to say something that's going to help. And I said, I don't think there is anything that you can say that's mm. going to help, but you can say I'm here for you. Mm. Mm. And as you said, I think it's very much about knowing that you're held in mind. So even that very simple intervention of, you know, a text saying, I'm thinking about you, I love you, can make a world of difference on the day. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Diane, it's such an honor to have been the one to interview you about your story. And I think this is it's very exciting that you've started this podcast. And I know that it will, it will help many people and, and help many people feel less alone with the experience. So thank you so much for talking to me today. Yes. Thank you so much, Rory. I appreciate it. Okay. That's it for today's episode. Please subscribe to Real Cancer wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Connect with us via Twitter at RealCancerPod and email us with episode ideas at RealCancerPodcast at gmail.com. If you know someone who'd be a terrific guest, I'd love to know about it. Until next time, I'm Diane McDaniel.